Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hour lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Patrice Fry from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Patrice is the director of the National Trust Sustainability Program, where she leads the organization's efforts to promote the reuse and greening of older and historic buildings. Before joining the National Trust, Patrice worked in community development and urban research, and she received a master's degree in preservation planning and a certificate in real estate design and development through the Penn School of Design and Wharton Business School. Each year in the U.S., approximately 1.7 billion square feet of buildings are demolished and approximately 5 billion square feet of newly constructed buildings are added to the total building stock. Earlier this year, the National Trust released the Greenest Building, quantifying the environmental value of building reuse, the most comprehensive analysis to date comparing the environmental impacts of new construction to those associated with reusing existing buildings. Patrice is here tonight to provide an overview of the study's findings and to discuss how the study's data and methodology can be applied to the work of planning professionals. Please join me in welcoming Patrice Fry. Can you all hear me okay? All right, good. Well, thank you for coming out on a rainy Tuesday evening. Um, I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks to the APA for the invitation. Um, I work for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which many of you may already be familiar with, but we are the national advocacy organization that helps people to save the places that they care about. Um, I'm going to be talking to you tonight about a work that a specific project of the National Trust has been doing, uh, the Preservation Green Lab, which is based in Seattle. Um, the Green Lab was, was opened about uh, three, four years ago now, and is really the programmatic office of the Trust that focuses closely on this issue of sustainable communities and the role that older and histor- historic buildings play in, in sustainable places. Um, the mission of the Green Lab is really twofold. The first is to reduce building demolitions because building demolition and new construction has some pretty serious sustainability implications, environmental impacts associated with it. Um, and the second thing we do is work very hard to make it easier to retrofit older and historic buildings. Uh, it's not enough just to reuse them. We also have an obligation to make sure that they're performing in a way that is uh, environmentally sensitive and efficient. Um, most of what I talk to you tonight about will be on the demolition side of, of the equation, but just know that we have a lot of resources on our website that are dedicated more towards this uh, efficiency piece. So tonight I was hoping to cover three topics uh, with you. So the, the first is this issue of building reuse. And if you care about the environment, why it is that building reuse is, is something that we should consider and, and think about a little bit more. Um, the second is this, this is sort of a late addition to the agenda. Um, this summer we, we completed, or at least got very close to completing, uh, some really interesting research, I think, on demolition trends here in Chicago which help us to understand a little bit about what gets demolished in Chicago, um, where, and maybe a little bit about why. So I'm I'm excited to get your reaction to that in Q&A this evening. And then the second, I'm sorry, the third thing I wanted to talk about is what we're doing at the National Trust to make it easier to reuse buildings. 
uh, and to really encourage more building reuse. So with that, we'll start with the first issue, which is building reuse. So this is a, a, a graphic that many of you may be familiar with. This shows energy use in the U.S. economy, and you can see that buildings are accountable or account for about 41% of our overall energy usage. Transportation accounts for 29%, and then in industrial accounts for about 30%. I don't know if it's possible to dim the lights, but I see some people, yeah, squinting. Um, thank, thank you very much. So. When we think about buildings and we think about the environment, there is often a whole lot of, of focus on this issue of the energy that buildings use during operations. And yes, that, that is important. This, that's not to, to belittle it at all. But what I'll be suggesting this evening is that there's a whole other side of the equation that we should be considering, which is other life cycle impacts associated with building. Um, to that end, before we start really going deep into the demolition uh, data, if you will, and the demolition impacts, if we're, if we're thinking about the operations of older buildings or buildings, there is often the assumption that old buildings are terrible energy hogs and boy, boy they're poor performers and the best thing we can do is demolish them and build something new and more efficient in their place. And actually what we see, data from the Department of Energy, suggests that quite the contrary, at least for commercial buildings, the older a building is, the less energy it tends to use per square foot. So what you can see is that buildings constructed before 1920, according to DOE, actually use less energy than any other era of construction up until the year 2000. Recent data from the City of New York's energy disclosure policy, which rolled in over the last year, shows very much the same thing, which, that, which is that older multifamily buildings tend to perform better than newer. So in this graph, it's pre-1950 are, are better performers than those of more recent vintage. And the same thing is true for office building, uh, which is that the older, you know, pre-1930 are better performers. Now, I always have to be honest and point out that this doesn't, it's quite the reverse for, for residential. The older the home, the worse the energy performance tends to be. Um, you can see that energy performance tends to be the worst before 1940. It tends to improve over time, uh, really when we start to add insulation to our homes in the 50s and 60s. So this, as people who care about buildings, efficiency, planning, has some important implications, I think, about where we want to focus our, our energy in terms of residential retrofits. But of course, that, that's not the topic of our conversation tonight. So that said, all that very important data about the performance of older buildings aside, there is this whole other side of the, of the equation that I've mentioned, which is the impacts associated with buildings when we construct them and even when we rehab them. And that really is the focus of our conversation today. Moving away from just thinking about this as an operationals challenge uh, to thinking about it as really a whole lifetime challenge for buildings. Um, this is this is some very interesting data that came from the department, or I'm sorry, from EPA back in 2009. Their sustainable materials management uh, piece, where inventory of the 480 materials, products, and services in the American economy, and they said. 
okay, well, which of these uses the most resources? Which of these has the, the greatest sort of environmental impact along a whole bunch of different dimensions? And you can see that this, this represents the top 20 of those materials, products, and services. And you can see that by far and away, the largest natural resource consumer in our economy is buildings. So new construction weighs in at 49%. And then um, there are other rehabilitation activities that also um, appear on this chart as well. Owner, owner uh, rehabs of their homes, additions and alterations, presumably to commercial or in industrial properties. And then tenant improvements even show up here. So what you're looking at is this the building industry represents close to 70% of, of this pie. It is a major resource, natural resource consumer. It's huge. Now, part of the reason it's so huge is because so many of our buildings get demolished and replaced. Um, we, you heard David mention some, some statistics at the beginning about the amount of, of buildings that are demolished every year. Um, I will tell you very candidly that our numbers on this are very sketchy. And, and in fact, when I started working on this six or seven years ago, I was a little bit surprised by how, how poor the tracking is for this issue. Um, so we have a whole bunch of different estimates. The best one comes from the EPA. It's, it's uh, about 15 years old at this point, though, and that was the, the number that data, I'm sorry, that David shared with you earlier. There are some other projections that are even a little bit more alarming. This is figure, a figure from the Brookings Institution. There are about 320 billion square feet, that's billion square feet of built space in the country. They estimate that between 2005 and 2030, about 27% or 82 billion square feet will be demolished and replaced in this country, even if you don't care at all about historic preservation or older buildings. That's a number that is, that is I think, a little bit alarming in terms of um, telling us about this, this real this cycle of, of demolition and replacement and, and thinking a little bit about the environmental impacts that that has. So this is a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to be sharing with you later on today. But as I, as I mentioned, we did some research this summer because we wanted to understand what demolitions look like here in Chicago. Um, because you can't really address a problem if you don't understand what it looks like in the first place. So we were able to obtain building permit data, both demolition and new construction, from the last eight years. And just very quickly, to give you a sense of what it looks like locally, there were about 50 million square feet of built space that was demolished in Chicago over the last seven and a half years alone. Um, that's equivalent to about 1.8 square miles of built space, if you think of that as a single story. It's also the equivalent to 530 um, average city blocks worth of space. And it it's amounts to more than 2 million tons of, of debris that potentially ends up in the landfill. Although, admittedly, some of that can be repurposed. So we'll come back to this later. Now, here's, here's what uh, got us thinking, part of what got us thinking at the National Trust, that this is something that we should, we should potentially be a little bit more, more mindful of from a, an environmental perspective. Um, around about 2007, 2008, we started to see some interesting studies come out that talked about the environmental impacts associated with demolition and constructing a new building. This, this is one of the first studies that was out of the gate. It came from the UK, a group called the Empty Homes Agency, and they looked at this question of um, you know, we assume that there is a certain amount of carbon that's expended when we construct a new home. How long would it take for this new energy efficient home to recover or recoup those, those carbon impacts through its efficient operations? 
And what they find is it takes somewhere between 35 to 50 years for that new green home to recover its initial impact. Now that's that's a pretty sizable number, especially if you think about how, um, in terms of climate change, while it's no longer really popular to talk about it, um, our most our most pressing period for emissions reductions is right now, and, and it really suggests that new construction not necessarily the way to get there. There was another study that came out from the University of British Columbia that looked at a very similar question. They were planning or thinking of demolishing this building here on their campus, uh, institutional uh, use. And they ran the same analysis and essentially found that it took about 38 years for a new green building to recover uh, the initial impact, carbon impact, associated with its, um, its construction. That brings us to the report that the National Trust just finished on the topic uh, earlier this year. Um, we were, of course, very excited by much of the research we saw from overseas, but there were a couple of challenges. One, it was from overseas, so we didn't know how applicable it was to the U.S. market. It really, most of the studies only looked at a single building type. They didn't look at it in uh, different climate zones. So there were a lot of variables here that made us a, li a little bit um, suspect in terms of the overall relevance to questions we face here at home. So we, the Preservation Green Lab, um, through the generous support of the Summit Foundation, were able to commission the report and brought together a really, I think, a dynamic and well-respected group of researchers who did, did the, uh, the analysis. Cascadia Green Building Council, which is sort of a rogue chapter of the USGBC, was really the project lead on this. Uh, we worked with some other folks, Skanska, for the materials data that was required for this. Uh, Qantas did the, the number crunching, which I'll tell you about in just a bit. And then Green Building Services helped us uh, with some of the energy modeling, and that, that's a firm based out of Portland that some of you may, may be familiar with. It, uh, with. So um, guiding questions for this study. What we really wanted to understand is, are there near-term carbon, carbon impact reductions associated with reusing buildings? If so, do those vary based on building type? Do they vary build, based on the climate region that the building is in? So we looked at a total of 14 real-world buildings to do this analysis, and we looked at seven different building types. Single-family residential, multifamily residential, we looked at a fairly good-sized commercial office building, an urban village mixed-use. This is really a Main Street-type building that you would see in just about any community across the country. We looked at elementary schools, as many of you may be familiar with. Um, we, we have a challenge on our hands in, in a lot of places throughout the country with people abandoning existing schools and locating them instead on the urban fringe. Uh, we wanted to understand at least a piece of the environmental impacts associated with that decision. And then we looked at two rehab projects. One, one was the rehab of um, a warehouse into multifamily residential and then a, where, a warehouse into a commercial office use. We used life cycle assessment to complete this analysis. How many of you are familiar with LCA? Just, all right. Well, fortunately, I will not be giving a very long description of this because it gets goes into the weeds very very quickly, but um, LCA life cycle assessment is really the scientific process that allows us to understand the environmental and human health impacts associated with a product or a service. And in this case, the product that we're interested in is buildings. It allows us to understand really um, take a close lens in and, and look at the impacts associated with extracting a material from the Earth's surface 
turning it into something that would resemble what we see as a, a construction material, a building material. Um, delivery of that and, and actually the construction process. Then we looked at the use phase, and uh, I'll tell you that, that took up a good 12 months of the project, the use phase alone, just figuring out what reasonable assumptions were for what um, energy we expected these buildings to use over their lifetime. And then finally, there are some pretty significant impacts associated uh, with uh, end of life. So the great thing about LCA is it lets you look at a whole bunch of different environmental impact categories. Um, you can look at impacts to resources, the overall resource equation or natural resources, ecosystem quality, things like um, air and water quality, human health impacts, again, something we don't always talk a whole lot about, but is, is of course very important. And then it allows us to look at climate change impacts as well. Now, you're going to hear me talk mostly about the climate change dimension for, for the rest of this presentation. Just, just know that if you're interested in any of these other factors, we did the same analysis um, and it's all available in, in the report if you'd like to learn more. We looked at four different climate regions. You can see them here up on the board, Chicago, Portland, um, Atlanta, and Phoenix. We wanted a good representation of these different climate zones. One, because we know that buildings use vastly different amounts of energy. Uh, put it a different way, the same building would use a whole lot more energy in Chicago than it would in Portland because of climate differences. We also know that grid mix plays a role because the grid mix in Portland is, is a heck of a lot cleaner than it is in in Chicago, and we wanted to know how all of that would influence the findings. So now we get into the findings. So the sort of general headline finding is that building reuse typically offers some offers significant environmental savings over demolition and new construction. And I wanted to drill down a little bit into this for you um, this evening, and, and just sort of bear with me because there's a whole lot to digest here. But It'll be easier if you just focus on what's in this black box here. Um, this is the finding that compares building renovation to new construction for a commercial office building in, um, in this is instance, we're just looking at Portland, Oregon. So what you can see is uh, we, we ran two different scenarios. One was a base case where we just assumed an average level of energy efficiency for both our new construction building and our retrofitted building. And that's in this gray. I'm sorry, it's probably not showing up very well for you. Um, and then we ran a second scenario where we looked at advanced conditions, assuming that that building had been, both the, the new construction and the retrofitted building had been improved to 30% more efficient than the baseline. So you can see that the reuse scenario for both the base case and the advanced offers some, some savings in terms of the climate change impacts. Uh, compared to the new construction. But what you might be thinking is, yeah, right, well, so there's some savings, but it's not overwhelming, right? And that, that honestly was my first reaction, too. You know, I got sort of a frantic call from the consultants who basically said, you know, we're a little concerned that this is not going to be what you want. And there was some of the not what you want. We'll get to that a little bit later. But one of the insights we had was that you had to look at this mapped over time, which is, um, it's this question of when do the impacts happen? And so you can see that if you map the impacts, here new construction appears in blue and um, rehab appears in, in this orangey red. 
Uh, if you map that over time, you can actually see that there is a big difference in these buildings and when the carbon impacts happen. And in fact, that for the commercial building in Portland, Oregon, you get to about year 40 before that new building is going to be, will be accruing uh, carbon emission savings over the existing building. Now, we looked at the same thing in Chicago, incidentally, and it's 25 years here in Chicago, again, because of that dirtier grid mix and the, the, more, uh, the harsher climate. So what we found is most buildings in most climate zones, well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so the range that we found was about 10 to 80 years. Depending on your climate zone, depending on what kind of building you're talking about, it could take anywhere between 10 to 80 years to recover those carbon impacts. Most buildings in most climate zones will take somewhere between 20 to 30 years to recover that initial um, carbon outlay, if you will, associated with the construction of that building. So what, what I think we see here is some fairly interesting clustering of the research around this idea that it takes somewhere between two, three, four decades to recover the impacts. And there is some consistency there um, in terms of our findings with what we're seeing from from other sources, especially overseas. Um, one other thing I just wanted to throw up here, and, and this becomes particularly relevant when we talk about Chicago and demolitions, is homes. We found very similar to that UK study, it takes somewhere around 38 to 50 years for uh, a new home to recover the impact. All right, so what does all this mean? If you were to open up the study and look just at the carbon savings from saving one individual building, you would not be very impressed. I can assure you it's, it's not very impressive. Um, but if you, if, what we wanted to understand is, you know, we, we know that there is a whole lot of demolition activity that takes place. We wanted to understand if we scaled up these results, um, what they might look like. So we looked at the city of Portland, Oregon, which has better data than most city. They estimate that they're, they'll demolish about 1% of their building stock over the next 10 years. So that for them, because it's a smaller city, amounts to about 4 million square feet of residential and, um, and commercial that will be demolished. Well, we know that Portland has some of the most aggressive and progressive um, climate reduction targets. And what we found is that if you were to reuse and retrofit that 1% of the building stock that they're planning to demolish, it would help them achieve 15% of their overall climate reduction, emissions reduction target over that same time period, over that 10 years. So if you're a planner, if you're a policymaker, if you're somebody, you know, a green building um, uh, expert, if you will, you're probably not necessarily thinking about building reuse as, a, as uh, offering a, a way to really rack up climate emission, or I'm sorry, emissions reductions, but, but I think this, um, this study suggests that it, it should be considered. Okay, so I mentioned there were some findings that I wasn't super excited about, and indeed that's the case. So what we found is that the quality and the type of material you use in a building are extremely important. Um, let me just pause one second here. Okay, so in, and in some instances, depending on the kind of material you are putting into an, uh, either an existing building, uh, well, into an existing building, you can really negate the advantages or reduce the advantages of that reuse. You said quality, but the slide says quantity, which is it? Uh, 
It is quantity. I'm sorry. You're you're right. Good catch. Okay, so it's the the quantity and the type of materials. Um, this for this scenario, you're looking at the warehouse that was converted to a residential building. Um, and what we found is that because of the kind of materials and again the quantity, um, there were some impact categories, not all, uh, where this building on paper actually had a slightly higher impact than the new construction scenario. It was about one percent higher. Um, it was all the, you know, this was even less thrilling to me because I live in a warehouse that was converted to residential, so it, it got me thinking uh, a little bit about this. So this has some really important implications, I think. Um, the first is of which is space planning. You know, the I think we're all pretty familiar with gut rehabs, which tend to be, I think, fairly popular. And what the study suggests is, yes, in some instances, that is still going to yield an environmental advantage, but it's not going to yield the same advantage if you had really tried to um, reuse as many of the materials as you possibly could. Um, so that was one lesson. Uh, the second is, you know, if you're a designer out there trying to make conscientious decisions about which material is best for the environmental profile of this building, there really aren't great tools available to do that. And so it's, it's, it's also a need to, I think, arm designers, arm architects, engineers even, with better resources so they know what the profile of a material looks like um, and can make some better choices. So um, this is the, the, the slide that, you know, sort of the no free lunch slide, which is I've talked a whole lot about the impacts associated with um, new construction, uh, but there are impacts associated with rehab as well. Um, and even, even for the, the rehabilitation scenarios we looked at, we put new materials into those both to bring the buildings up to date and also to um, retrofit them for better performance. And we see that even that takes about three to eight years to recover. So everything we're putting into a building has an impact. And uh, again, important to keep in mind from a materials selection process. All right, so now I want to transition and tell you a little bit about uh, demolition trends in Chicago. And I should, I should mention that this is, uh, this is very new research. It's not, it's not completely. Uh, done yet, so I'll be very interested in your comments during any period and any, any questions you may have. So, uh, it turns out over the last seven and a half years, Chicago has demolished about 8,700 buildings. They have constructed, we have constructed 13,000 new buildings. One of the things we wanted to understand is whether if you've demolished a building, it will be rapidly uh, followed by new construction on site. And in fact, we see that that doesn't happen, um, uh, well, put another way, it happens about 25%, 30% of the time. So um, you can see if you slice and dice the data, looking at this as a north side, south side question, you can see most building demolitions take place on the north side, um, about 55% side, about 45% of the overall demolitions. Now, here's where things get pretty interesting, though. Um, you can see that demolition on the north side is followed much more rapidly by new construction, which probably is fairly intuitive. We know that the north side is a hot market, and, and we would expect to see more new construction there. We're a little surprised at this 51% rate. It seems to suggest that there are more, uh, more land that's sitting 
vacant for at least some period of time than we thought. Um, one of the things we're looking into, there may be site consolidations here that didn't, weren't captured in our analysis. And so we're taking a closer look to understand if that 51% number is actually higher than we think it is right now. Now, on the south side, totally different story, almost like a com completely different city. Uh, replacement rate is only 11%, suggesting a very, very uh, low level of investment. Again, tracks with everything that, um, unfortunately, we would expect to see on the south side. We wanted to understand what demolition looks like vis-a-vis -vis historic districts and whether the historic districts in the city were doing a good job of um, protecting buildings. And indeed, we found that they were. Um, of, the, of all demolitions, only about 72 took place in, in historic districts. And even those, the thinking is that most of those happened before those districts were actually formed and were probably part of the impetus for the, the districting. Um, but the other thing that we, we noticed is that about of those demolitions, so probably 15-20% of those demolitions occurred within a quarter mile of historic districts, suggesting that district, district, districting itself could uh, place some pressure on the surrounding areas that may help to really drive demolition um, on, in border areas. This was interesting, so we looked at TIF districts and we found that about 33% of the demolitions in the city are happening in TIF districts. Um, which uh, was a little bit surprising to me. I'm not from Chicago, so I was not particularly familiar with how TIF districts work. Um, but if the goal is to maximize the increment, you can see why uh, demolishing a building to get the land value down as low as you possibly can uh, could really incentivize demolition. So that was, that was something that was pretty revealing to us. All right, so now, what, what types of buildings get demolished in Chicago? Well, first of all, there's a whole lot we don't know because of the way the city tracks data, unfortunately. So about a quarter of this is just uh, a mystery to us. We do know, however, that there are a huge number of single-family homes that are, uh, that are bulldozed uh, um, annually. They weigh in about 34%. Multifamily is also pretty significant here at 20%. Now, if we look at new construction, and again, this is new construction that's been mapped to the sites of um, those demolished buildings, we see that there is a huge, huge uh, portion of, of the new construction that is single-family home. Um, this, to me, really suggests that uh, that the sort of teardown phenomenon, where people tear down homes and 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 uh, with something substantially larger, is is a challenge not just within the suburbs, which I think we all sort of realize, um, but is also a challenge within uh, the city itself. Um, and one of the things that uh, has been pointed out to me a few times in talking about the, the data is that uh, people are, are observing multifamily, you know, two, three, four flats being demolished and replaced with single-family homes as well. So we're actually seeing a de-densification on the north side, which is, um, you know, again, is a little bit of an outsider to Chicago, is not really what I would expect to see in an urban area. Um, Building age, okay, again, huge unknowns here, unfortunately, but we do see, for what, what we do know, is lots of demolition or buildings that are constructed between 1880 and 1910 seem to be particularly vulnerable to demolition, which is, um, you know, a little bit of ed editorializing, really unfortunate if you think about the quality of materials that's usually in these buildings and the character and that sort of thing. So. Again, if we're thinking about how we might target any sort of plan to reduce demolitions, having some sense of what's most threatened is important. 
So when we took on this study, one of the things that I really expected to see was that we would see lots of demolitions um, making way for higher density uses. And so we would see population growth really bounce up in some of the, the uh, wards where, where demolition, was, uh, demolition activities were, were most prevalent. And actually, that, that turns out to not be the case. Um, most, of, uh, most of the demolition is happening in, in areas that have pretty stable populations. We're not seeing these huge population spikes. You know, from a preservation perspective, I'm always worried and concerned about this sort of tension between preservation and density and um, buildings being two, three, four-story buildings being demolished to be replaced with something significantly more dense. And, and that, that is not really showing up in the data. Okay, so I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about some of the work that we're doing to encourage reuse. And um, Rachel Bowden, who's the program assistant at the National Trust, and I just uh, finished a PAS memo, which I hope you might have a chance to check out. Um, this, this gives an overview of the, we'll call it the arsenal of tools that we have currently um, that helps people to preserve buildings or uh, encourage reuse of buildings. One of the things I want to note is that uh, this, this doesn't just look at historic buildings, it also looks at older buildings. And you've probably heard me talk a lot tonight about older buildings generally. Um, what we found in the Preservation Green Lab is that to really um, uh, uh, do the best job we can of advocating for historic buildings. We need to be pretty conversant in talking about older buildings more generally and existing buildings for that matter. Um, so th this piece is very focused on not just the tools, the conventional tools like landmarking and districting, but also some of the more, the newer tools that you may not necessarily think of as helping to encourage building reuse in your community, but, but can certainly help to get you there, like um, uh, right-sizing parking requirements, for example. Um, we also look at conservation districts, which are um, I'm a, a big fan of because I, I think they're uh, very effective in helping to encourage reuse of, of um, all kinds of buildings, not, not just historic. And then we, we look a little bit at next generation tools for protecting older buildings. We've got some work that we're doing in the Preservation Green Lab that um, makes energy codes more friend friendly for existing buildings. I, I won't dwell on that too much tonight, but uh, just to let you know that there are lots of resources available on our website related to that. And then there are any number of district strategies, eco-district strategies that are emerging that I think um, can help maybe tip the scales in favor of reuse, especially for older, smaller commercial buildings. Um, so I would, again, encourage you to check this out if you haven't already. So that said, we do have a set of tools um, I, I, I won't try and pretend like that set of tools is completely adequate for everything we, we need in terms of really encouraging um, or reducing demolition. So um, if we think about the reasons that building reuse doesn't happen, there are any number of challenges, um, some of which we may or may not be able to influence. Certainly, I mean, how many of us in the room know any super famous preservation architects? Yeah, okay, so no one, myself included, my preservation colleagues in the front row included as well, right? So architects tend to prefer a blank canvas, right? I think it, it is re it's also representative of a, this cultural preference towards, towards new or for new things. Um, we also know that the industry or industry and the economy is really aligned behind new construction. So just last week I was listening to Marketplace on NPR 
And of course, there was a big story about how new housing starts were up and how wonderful that was for the American economy. And I think it really says something that new construction is the ultimate barometer of how well the American economy is doing. Um, and, and, and maybe given what we just saw about the environmental impacts associated with that, that, that could give us a little bit of pause. The second or the third thing is the economics of reuse. Now, this is something where um, this can cut both ways. There are easily sometimes where reuse is the less expensive option, and there are easily, op easily times when it is not. And, and that's something that I think we in the preservation community have to be honest about. Um, that's why things like historic tax credits, both federal level and the state level, are incredibly important because they can help to really close that gap. Um, but there are some real challenges here, I think, also just in terms of perception. Uh, there are a lot of developers out there who just aren't comfortable with reuse work and uh, stay away from it from that reason. for that reason. Policy and regulatory disincentives, I would point to TIF districts in Chicago is perhaps a good example of uh, policy that may be driving demolition that we don't even think about. Um, we, as I said, have done a lot of work in Seattle. What we've discovered there is um, even, uh, even in, in taking some of our projects through the regulatory process, there are um, there's a sequencing issue. The sequence of decision making is incredibly bureaucratic and, and un unhelpful. Bureaucratic probably isn't the right word, but unhelpful in terms of the sequence where you go from one decision to the next and the next decision can undo the, the, the previous decision. So there are opportunities to change that, right? It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, and so we're, we're very interested in what sort of options might exist in terms of uh, addressing some of these policy and regulatory challenges. And then the last one I threw in there as kind of a question mark. I think I've seen, I've seen a little bit of movement in this just in the um, five, seven years I've been working on this. Um, I think a few years back, the conversation in the green building community was almost exclusively about new construction and the glories of new construction uh, and how wonderful that was from a green, green perspective. I think we're starting to see a little bit more of a consciousness about how new construction is not going to save us from um, any of our problems. We are launching with the Urban Land, Insti Urban Land Institute, a partnership that I'm, I'm really excited about. It's called the Partnership for Building Reuse. And um, to, it's a little bit of a tangent. If you, if you look at groups like the affordable housing community, they have done a really remarkable job of identifying barriers that stand in the way to affordable housing, and it's more than just it costs a lot of money. Um, we in the preservation community, I think, need to take this opportunity to really do a systematic inventory of, uh, of the barriers that stand in the way of bu building reuse more generally. And so this partnership with Urban Land Institute is really uh, the very beginning of that. Um, we want to essentially work with, uh, we're, we're targeting five cities um, to go in, more or less audit the development process, understand what the obstacles are that stand in the way of building re reuse in a variety of cities, and then uh, with having convened a group of stakeholders, really try to understand which of those things do we have a chance of influencing and what does the action plan look like for, look like for that. So we will be announcing um, this week or early next week formally that we've selected Los Angeles as our first city for this project. 
Um, we're really excited to be doing work there. Uh, LA may seem like a somewhat unlikely choice in terms of uh, building reuse, but they, they actually have a remarkable legacy of really um, caring about this issue and committing to it. They have an adaptive reuse ordinance that dates to 1999 that's been extremely effective at converting, particularly their, you don't really see it here, but their downtown older commercial stock into residential buildings. Um, they're, they're now dealing with a class of buildings that were never really touched by that ordinance. And um, so there's some thinking that the ordinance needs a little bit of updating, perhaps. And, and this, this partnership may be a way to uh, identify some of the, the solutions that could be part of that, that update. Um, as I've, I've mentioned throughout the, the talk here today, there are, there's a lot of other work that the Preservation Green Lab is doing around um, building reuse and retrofits. And so I would encourage you to um, take a look at the website, which is on the next slide. Um, again, good stuff on uh, new energy code work that we're doing. Um, we're doing a lot of work with the New Buildings Institute to develop retrofit tools that are specifically targeted to older commercial buildings. Um, what we find is that, well, first of all, older commercial buildings make up um, uh, 95, I'm sorry, older, smaller commercial buildings make up 95% of the existing commercial inventory. So put another way, 95% of the commercial buildings out there are under 50,000 square feet. And yet what we find in the retrofit market is most of the retrofits are happening, at least in the commercial sector, in much, much larger buildings because those are the building owners that tend to have the technical resources, tend to have the financial resources. So we're doing some work with, with New Buildings Institute to really develop some low-cost tools and potentially some financing options that will help deliver retrofit strategies to those smaller, um, smaller buildings. Uh, we're, we're particularly interested in what you see along Main Street um, corridors throughout the country. So that's some exciting work. And then, uh, as I mentioned, we're doing, uh, have, have some efforts around identifying financing that will work for these particular kinds of projects. So thank you very much for your attention this evening. And our contact details are up here. Thanks, Patrice. Let's have a round of applause. And just as a reminder, as we open this up to a Q&A, just put your hand up and I'll come to you with this microphone so we can record your questions for our podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Just an observation. Um, I don't know what time frame you had. You were, you were really discussing in terms of the demolition and the difference between the north and south side of Chicago. Yeah. But whether or not it included the fact that on the south side of Chicago, you've had the major demolition of the projects, the housing projects. Yes. Which probably accounts for a lot of what you were referring to. And, and what has happened is that that hasn't been replaced. The land area has not been, the, the housing stock has not been replaced. Yeah. Say, for example, compare that to the, the Robert Taylor part that's relatively empty compared to the Cabrini Green part where mm -hmm. you've got an increased density, still not the density that we had with Cabrini Green, but at least you still have quite a bit of density. Yeah. So when you reflect numbers like that, it, it looks like there may be less investment per se, but there's you know, assumptions and reasons why behind that. And, and I don't want anybody to sit here and just think, well, nothing's happening on the south side of Chicago no, 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 because that, that, I think that would point. be a, a terrible injustice. I think that's a great point. And to answer your, the, the first question there, the, the study period was 2004 to 2012, so I'm guessing that captures 
Yeah, and we did try to do a little bit of work uh, to understand which of these buildings may have been um, the projects that you're talking about, and unfortunately, we just couldn't, based on the sort of data that's available from the city. It wasn't easy to get at. Hi, Patrice. Hi. Um, Jonathan Fine from Preservation Chicago. Um, we saw a smaller version of this, so uh, it's really good, um, a really good study. I just wanted to make uh, a couple of, I guess, ask a question and make a couple of comments. Uh, the first question is about what we have co coined uh, as the demolition industrial complex. In other words, there's a lot of people. There's there's a there's a handful of large demolition contractors, well connected, um, well politically con uh, politically connected, that make a lot of money by demolishing buildings. And I'm just wondering if there had been any um, um, study or um, thought that went into that political aspect of why buildings, particularly in Chicago, get demolished. Um, and your thoughts on that? That's a that's a great a great point. And actually, no one. We had some small discussion sessions about this demolition data over the last few weeks, and nobody raised that. And I, I love that as something to look into and, and try and understand a bit more. The demolition industrial complex. It's a new term. Uh, in your study, did you look at uh, how cities treat troubled buildings when buildings are condemned and removed from property owners and then usually demolished either for a number of code violations or because the property was trouble with crime, you had a slumlord condition where the home may be turned into a home full of drug addicts and the city just removes the property uh, in order to quote-unquote, purify the neighborhood, as it's usually pitched. And uh, Chicago has launched this campaign recently under Rahm Emanuel's administration where they're doing this again, and the city had done this in the 90s, and many great buildings have been lost as a result. Yeah, um, that, 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 that I think gets it to some of the fundamental questions about the demolition activity that we see um, on the south side and, and what, what percentage of those really are. I mean, there are a few things that could be. Some of it could be um, uh, foreclosures, right? You have owners like Bank of America who have very large programs to go in and demolish lots of single-family homes. Um, and, in, and to your point, I think there are other instances where it's a health and safety issue. And um, I'm going to be totally honest with you and say um, I, think, I think that's a huge challenge when you're talking about community safety. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in understanding is, is whether or not there are communities that have done a good job of essentially, you know, if you can't bring a building back right away, is there a way you can at least mothball it, right? So, you know, so sort of keep it from being a, a pariah in the, the neighborhood. Um, and and, and um, preserve at least the option for it later on. So it's something that we're looking into. Hi, hi. thank you for such a great presentation. I work primarily as an energy auditor in aging multifamily building stock for the Center of Te Neighborhood Technology. Oh, yeah. And this is like, it's really refreshing to see well-presented data on the topic. Um, my question is sort of rhetorical and something you alluded to in the challenges of making the case for preser preservation. Uh, you know, obviously, in a political season, you, you know the way immediately the way to check the pulse of the economy is the new housing starts and you know, new construction. I mean, how do you even begin, or planners as a profession, begin to combat that 
perception that economic health is directly correlated to uh, new housing. Well, here's, here's one idea. So there are actually a number of studies out there that talk about, from a jobs generating po point of view, rehab is actually way, way than construction. And it's, it's pretty easy to understand why. Um, in new construction, the vast majority of your dollars, I think it's about 70%, are going to materials. And we know with international sourcing, you may be getting your dry, you probably are getting your drywall from China, um, your steel from China. Uh, with rehab, on the other hand, most of those dollars go towards labor, and that labor is by definition local. Um, and typically what we see in rehab is that it, it tends to be more 50% towards material and 50% towards labor. So some of it, I think, is um, helping people to understand that actually from a numbers perspective, new construction, you know, that it, the numbers just don't quite add up the way that it's expected to. Hi, thank you. Um, I recently read uh, a, an article in the uh, most recent planning magazine that said that um, in general, I think it was referring to Detroit in this case, but in general, it costs around $25,000 to um, preserve a building in Detroit and 10000 to knock it down. So just looking at the numbers alone without any other factors, how do you convince somebody like Mayor David Bing who has been um, promoting the demolition of these you know, historic but aging buildings, uh, especially in a, in a financial climate like this where cities are strapped for money, there's not a lot of resources to go around. Um, he's made it part of his campaign to actually knock down buildings in Detroit. And a lot of these buildings are historically significant in some way, but they're so dilapidated and so far gone that it's hard to make the case for preser preservation. And I'm wondering, based on your research, what have you found to, to convince elected officials and city governments of this? Well, so there, there is one sort of provocative idea that's out there that I'm, I'm following. Um, the Northeast has a carbon trading, uh, a regional carbon trading system. And there's some work going on right now. Um, it's led by the Massachusetts Mill Owners Association to see if carbon credits can be obtained um, basically to help, uh, help conserve the building, right? So you acknowledge that there's a carbon impact associated with demolition and constructing something new in that place. And you, you get a, a credit for instead maintaining that building, which can be used for um, towards maintenance. and, and um, conserving the building at least until it can be put to some other um, some other economic use. So I think that's one of the bigger ideas that's out there that has some potential. Um, in terms of whether I, I don't know of anybody right now that's really cracked that issue though and is doing it in an effective way. It looks like there's a, David, there's a follow-up. Oh. Yeah. Thanks. I think uh, one other follow-up question I had was living in Chicago for the last eight years, I've really noticed that there's a lot of community input on a vacant home or a dilapidated home in the community. And a lot of just local, um, you know, mindset for demolishing a home comes from the community. They'll say, hey, this home is, you know, undesirable. It's lowering our property values. It's boarded up. Its roof is caving in. They go to the local alderman and say, hey, we want this knocked down because it's hurting our property values. And I think a lot of people 
see it as a way um, you know, to, to save their own homes from, from losing value. Because I, I read somewhere, I can't remember the study, but a boarded-up home on a block can significantly decrease the value of, of occupied homes. Um, so I'm just curious if there's been any, like, local, like, uh, ward-based uh, research on this or if there's been any input on this study. I know it's still very new, but I'd be interested to find out. Yeah, it's still very new. So I, yeah, unfortunately don't have anything for, for you on that front. Okay. Uh, Two-part question. One, does your data include public buildings and on that note, um, the city has a lot of great green initiatives like green alleys, green roofs, but at the same time, I've seen a lot of demolition of libraries to build new libraries, new fire stations, schools, uh, proposed school closings, and um, just wanted you to comment on that. Yeah, uh, this does include, um, as far as I know, it includes uh, permit data from the city. I think it issues itself a permit for demolition or new construction activities. I'm pretty sure that we uh, we discussed that question with our, our researcher. Um, in terms of, you know, I think that you raised a great possibility, which is um, talking with the city about their own activities related to this so they can serve as a better model for the community. This is a variant of that question, but have you looked or how is it possible to look at when a a, a site is a, a use is eliminated and then recreated at a different location. So it's like when when the school is no longer used and a new school is built, but not on that site. It's built, you know, five blocks away or somewhere like that. And then possibly the school gets reused or it gets demolished. That seems to complicate the picture quite a bit. Uh, like in where I lived, where our city hall, this was many years ago, but the city hall was was abandoned, reconstructed in another location, and then eventually that was turned, the old city hall was turned into apartments, which makes for a very complex situation in terms of energy benefits, climate benefits. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm not in, I'm not in entirely sure how to address that one to be totally honest. I, you know, it's it's sort of this complex equation ultimately of um, you know, if if instead of developing a new urban, you know, tract house on the urban fringe, the um, you know, you you now have people living in this converted city hall building in a fairly dense multifamily situation, then I think I would look at that as an environmental win, but um, I think you're right. Things get very complex very, very quickly. Hi there. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask if your uh, life cycle um, carbon emission uh, calculations, if they involved uh, transportation costs and um, yeah, kind of what I'm question. getting, or, and not transportation materials, but actually like, you know, generally when, uh, older buildings with no parking uh, get demolished, and then a new building goes in, even if it's the same size or something, it has parking. Yeah, that, that's actually a great follow-on to this gentleman's question because it, it speaks to the complexity of all this. And no, we did not look at transportation as a factor. Um, we would have liked to, but frankly, we didn't, we didn't have the funding for it. What we assumed here was an apples-to-apples comparison. So if you demolished a building, you would replace it with something that was substantially the same size. 
Now, there are plenty of instances where that doesn't happen and uh, the building is replaced with something larger. You can certainly argue that there are environmental benefits associated with that, um, but you also have to look at, I think, the neighborhood impacts and the sort of whether or not the quality of place is being reduced by losing that building, and it's a question of maybe that, that newer high-density use could have gone to an already vacant parcel nearby, um, that sort of thing. But uh, long story short, no, we didn't look at transportation, and it's a great study question that we actually mention as something needs, that needs to be done. Hi, uh, thank you so much. This is a great presentation. I have so many questions, but just kind of a more general one for a room of of planners and with such uh, great information of how this is, um, how this data is siphoning down, not just to, you know, planning schools, preservation programs um, within architecture schools, but I remember in architecture school there was like one small section on historic preservation there, and how um, with more research like this is that being, um, what kind of partnerships are there forming with schools, um, specifically architecture schools to you know, see more thesis projects on this sort of thing as opposed to the, the architect creation. Yeah, well I know of, of one great example. The University of Washington has, I think, more in, in Washington State, in Seattle, has, I think, more focus on uh, rehab and reuse as um, a, a course of study for their students. They've got some great faculty there who really focus on that issue and I think have tried, um, have been successful in making this something exciting and challenging for students to work on. And I think to your point, there's just, there's huge opportunity um, to really encourage more students to think about this. And, and, you know, I think there's also great work that's happening in terms of the remaking suburbs work that's going on as well, like rethinking suburbs and repositioning those. Th those that's more in the planning realm than the architecture realm, though. Hi there. Uh, three quick comments, one very macro, two very micro. First of all, I think this is a very, very interesting presentation. This, the research is really fascinating. Uh, I think it's very significant that it's speaking a language that folks who have not been prone to preservation are able to, to really hear and hopefully respond positively to. Uh, the two micro comments are just with regard to the presentation. You may want to, in slicing Chicago, instead of just doing a north-south divide, you may include a west divide, yeah. which may give you more... Um, accurate yep. uh, presentation or representation of the numbers. Uh, and the second point is just um, in that early slide when you had the, all the vertical columns, one point you might make is that a rehab building can be just as energy efficient as the brand new building, day one, which I think is important too. Most people think, oh, it's an old building, the windows leak, it can't be made yes. energy efficient. But you know, if you sort of flip your comments sort of upside down or look at them through the looking glass, again, you can have a very powerful um, secondary point on that slide. You're right, and and the thinking there. Um, first of all, I'll back up to your your first point, which is you're the second or third person now that's mentioned. We need to look at this as a north south west issue. So I think that's that's really helpful, and and um, we're going to put some some thought into that. In terms of, is this what you're talking about? The Yeah. So that you don't lose, you could do a time value money analysis again to borrow it from sort of the economic world, but to so you don't lose the value from day one. So you know essentially, if right. you're, but money yeah. invest dollars in the bank. What are they worth in year five, in year ten, in year year fifty? And the answer is you're always going to be ahead with historic preservation yeah. or the adaptive reuse because well, of the, the gains early on. 
and I see your point, and I think it's it's a good one. It's a very important one to make. What we are, what we were trying to communicate in this study, as much as anything, is okay. Let's go with your assumption that an old building is not going to be a good performer, and even if we assume that it's not going to be a good performer, you're still seeing that it takes 40 years for that new construction to catch up. And actually, if you go to the previous slide, I think it's the previous slide. This one, I mean, the energy use related impact is essentially equivalent for both the historic and the rehab. Or, I'm sorry, the, the um, new construction and the rehab, the which is a way to suggest that if you're going to spend X number of yeah. dollars to either build a new building or to bring this building up to speed, essentially you can get to the same point. Yeah. So there's nothing inherently obsolete, functionally obsolete with your older building. It can be brought to the same standards as, you know, as new, construction. As new construction. And there are lots of great examples out there that make that clear. Hi, Patrice. Thanks so much for your work. The data that you're bringing forward is invaluable to us who are working on the ground and talking with developers. The other day, though, I was speaking with somebody who's a ULI member, and they hadn't heard about this study, and that would be a natural. So I'm wondering how this has been distributed to the USGBC, ULI, as well as other partners with whom we work in preservation and need to establish this kind of, um, this kind of data repu you know, representation that we, we have the quantitative analysis to back up what we're seeing. Great question. So we've, um, USGBC actually has been, a, had a lot of interest in this report, and we've done a webinar, and we're going to present at GreenBuild uh, in a few weeks. Um, ULI, I think through our partnership through Building Reuse, we're going to have an opportunity to expose more people to this research and hopefully help them understand why this is something they should care about. And of course, we, you know, happy to work with APA, and we did some blogging um, earlier in the summer to really get the word out about this study as well. I think we'll let that be the final word for the sake of time. Let's have one more round of applause for Patrice Fry. <laughs> On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Patrice Fry for a thought-provoking and informative program on the greenest building. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.